welcome to The Executive Appeal, a show that convenes the world's most powerful and successful leaders to share mentoring and career advancement advice to help you successfully transition into senior level executive positions. I'm your host, Alex Trimble, award-winning speaker, author, and leadership expert with over a decade of experience coaching and advising some of our nation's most senior level government leaders. So if you're ready to reach your goals, let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull. And today, today is a good day. Today, I have with me another phenomenal guest, another phenomenal, awesome friend of mine, Mr. Cardell Carter Esquire. Ooh, doesn't that sound smart? See, Cardell is the executive director of the Aspen, Aspen Institute Socrates Program, a global education forum for leaders learning from leaders. And He's the founder of the Festival of Diaspora, an annual Latin American-based convening of leaders across the Americas and the Western Balkans. Cordell serves on a number of boards and advisory committees. And in June of 2021, President Joe, Joe, Joe Biden, oh man, appointed him to be the commissioner to the President's Commission on White House Fellowships. This man is awesome, and there is nothing else I can say, but how are you doing today, kind sir? Doing well. Greetings from Istanbul, Turkey. <laughs> I was saying, you know how cool that sounds to say uh, greetings from Turkey? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a place. If you haven't been, I put it on your list. <laughs> well, look, I want to kick us off by asking the question that I know everyone is waiting to hear. How do we become an Esquire? Like, do you got to like just the, just the queen like knight you or something like that? <laughs> no, no. It's, it's just a uh, another it's the old way of saying that I have a law degree. Um, <laughs> once I stopped practicing, uh, I guess, 18 months ago, I was getting so busy with some of my entrepreneurial pursuits. I had to let something go. And so mm -hmm. I let something go, which was my law license. But I added something. And that is the Esquire. Uh, and so I'm Cordell Carter Esquire. <laughs> hey, hey, it's 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 official. It's official. <laughs> yes, I'm still paying that Esquire off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, like so many of us. Um, so the first question I I've been I've been really looking forward to asking you about is um you know. Many people know the executive pill as this podcast, where we share ideas with leaders such as yourself um, across the world to help the individuals grow and learn and, and ultimately move in those senior level positions. Uh, but it's not just that. Um, the executive appeal is actually a program I run for organizations. So I, I go in and I create spaces where leaders have a safe place to ask difficult questions, have have a difficult conversation and learn and grow together. And this is what I enjoy doing. Now, the Socrates program, the Aspen Institute, my understanding is that the Aspen Institute and your program does something there very, very similar to say the least. Can, can you share a little more about what you do over there? Sure, sure. So the Socrates program uh, was the first public program that the Aspen Institute created 26 and a half years ago. It was a direct response to criticism, um, at least in the mid-90s, that the Aspen Institute was too insular um, and too old and too Midwestern because, you know, the founders were Chicago-based uh, German-American entrepreneurs. Um, they created this, this place for men to come together and find their common humanity uh, such that, you know, we wouldn't have a World War III. In the late 40s, that was a major concern mm -hmm. um, as leaders. Um, and for, you know, the 
the first 45 plus years of the Institute, things are going along a little swimmingly. But um, that criticism was there. There were hardly any women. There were hardly any people of color. And this thing called the internet was happening in the mid-90s. And our founders, uh, co-founders, uh, Gary and Laura Lauder, uh, were then you know, a newly married couple, not quite 30 years old. And they said, wow, we are the youngest people here by at least three decades. And Laura's the only, like this, this organization is not going to stand the test of time because the internet is happening. It's going to change the world. And so they were given license to create a forum for young, younger leaders to come together. So rather than these, you know, three week um, sojourns with the great books and togas in the woods that had <laughs> Aspen had been known, for, we're doing weekend events, three day weekends, starting over uh, Presence Day weekend um, in 1996. And here we are today, 27 years later, with uh, 10,000 alums all over the world. And what we do is um, uh, use like values and ethics based uh, text-based Socratic dialogue on a contemporary leadership topics. And so whether the issue is cybersecurity or private surveillance or, um, I don't know, international relations, foreign policy, instead of a philosopher in the room um, talking about Plato and Locke, um, we talk about what's actually happening today, right now, something that you can actually use when you leave that building. And so we, we gather brilliant, um, curious, diverse leaders together in a beautiful places. They have their intellectual workout. They really go at it in that room for four hours a day. And then we stop and then we go out and enjoy um, that town, that city, that region yeah. together and have these common experiences. And so I first attended in 2011 and I was looking for an intellectual community. I found my tribe and, and Socrates that winter 2011 and I've never left. Well. Look, selfishly, as someone who was recently uh, accepted into that fellowship program uh, and I will be going out there in July, I am very, very happy that we're not walking around in togas. Um, yes. I, I would prefer not to. So thank it you for really, that. Just FYI. You know, He's a what? It was really cool in the 60s. You're reading Antigone. I should give some context to that. They were actually engaging in a play and that play is Antigone, the, the famous Greek tragedy mm -hmm. leadership through that. In fact, uh, without the togas. Every Aspen employee has to engage in Antigone at least once. Our oh, wow. So when we do staff seminars, we engage in Antigone. In fact, this October, um, and since I'm in Turkey, I'll say, inshallah, uh, God willing, uh, we will be bringing Socrates to Greece um, in October, wow. where every participant will go to the Delphi Amphitheater with Gina Belafonte, of that Belafonte name, and will be engaged in Antigone in a place where Antigone was actually uh, created millennia ago. We're very excited. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or replacement for Fagley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. Man, that, that, is, that is really, really cool. And again, he keeps dropping this, uh, this turkey stuff and making me a little... little <laughs> I mean, he, people think I'm cool. You're outside. You're right in D.C. area. Well, I, yeah, I'm not in Turkey. Um, so... so my, my question I'd love to kind of dive into with you is, you know, creating these spaces, right? Uh, we live in a time where 
it's very easy to be uh, to to get yourself in trouble when you're asking a question. Sometimes if you're a D.I.C.K. and you're you're being mean, then you should actually you should have to deal with consequences. But you if you're a leader trying to understand something, man, like not being able to to fall, not being able to fail, not being able to get things wrong can really hamper your career and ultimately impact your personal life and your family. So again, I work with these organizations to create these spaces, but I'd love to see how do you create those spaces where people feel safe enough to to have those those dialogues? Yeah, I'll give you two answers. One is the Aspen answer. There's a tried and true method of what we call curating the room. And so the text and location is as important as the people in the room. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at applicants like yourself, we're like, you know, what does Alex bring? Um, Does he have any... a record, a public record of, of being a real jerk. Uh, is this a person that's open uh, to, to dialogue, especially with someone who disagrees with them? That's what we're seeking to attract. And that's typically what we find. Now, there have been times when we've had to, you know, tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, this may not be the best for you. Here's a refund. Um, we'll see you later. Uh, because it's just not, you know, thinking of a particular instance a few years ago, there's an older gentleman who did not like um, young women disagreeing with them in public. And I'm like, oh, man, we're, we're going to have some problems, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, 51% of Socrates are women, and they have a lot to say. And I will make sure they have a right to say it. So you have to go. We also um, shroud our convenings with Chatham House rule, which means, you know, basically whatever said there, um, you don't repeat and you don't attribute to whoever said it. So like, Say you said uh, the sky is green and you all are confused. I would say someone in my session said the sky is green and that we're all confused. I can't say Alex said that, right? That's Chatham House rule. The other answer, uh, I had a great, uh, I should say the exemplary example of it. Was that yesterday? Yeah. No, day before yesterday, I, I lecture. In addition to curating seminars in Aspen, I also lecture um, for some executive institute, one being the Federal Executive Institute. My topic was Becoming an Inclusive Republic. It's a uh, name of a forthcoming book that I'm trying to finish now. And uh, there's a gentleman who felt safe enough, and I'm so proud to say, I don't know how to say what I'm about to say, but I feel safe to say it. This is exact words. He says, how do we talk about um, diversity without making people feel ashamed to be white? Mm. And it almost brought tears to my eyes. I've been waiting for someone to ask that question out loud for three years. I've been doing this lecture and it created a a whole new stream of empathy and dialogue that was not a part of my script. We actually ran over time. And thank goodness, because I was lecturing from Jean that day. I was eight hours. um, And his openness gave me so much, such a jolt of energy that I'm the one that made us go over because I had a whole lot to say about making safe places for everyone. And I was so proud of him for uh, having the courage and feeling open enough to say what he really thought. Because like you said, so often, that's not what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, we need more dialogue, not less. And we can't ask people to be open and then punish them for saying what they think. You know, I mean, there's, a, there's multiple ways of having eggshell skin. And one is your reaction. Okay. And so uh, it, it, it engendered a great dialogue. Um, that took us in a completely different place. But I know that the training from Aspen um, and creating these amazing spaces for people to be open certainly is influenced in a way that I lecture. You know, I love everything about what you just said. If I can depend on, on one of the points you made, which is you have to set expectation. Mm-hmm. If 
If you allow behavior that is not in alignment with the values and the culture you're creating for that space to persist, then you can't have that space. No one, no one will trust that they can have their, their voices in those spaces. And so I love um, that you're willing to say, hey, look, look, I, look, I know you paid for this, but you didn't pay that much. Let's uh, <laughs> you're going to need to step away and here's your yeah. money back. And, and that, that, that is a very important point, because, you know, our job is to create amazing experiences for leaders. OK, and so um, I am not typically a detail oriented person. This role has made me such. I mean, ask my spouse. She's like, you know, you don't know where your keys are three minutes after coming in the house yet for a seminar. You can do minute by minute for four days straight. Yes, I can, because I know the stakes of every minute. People are paying a premium to have these experiences. I want to make sure that's a great experience. doesn't mean people agree with you. It does mean that you have an opportunity to express yourself. And I can't have people in that space that are violating our norms. And so I'm, I'm thankful that um, we have license to give people their money back. Some organizations don't. They have to just deal with it. Um, say, no, 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 no. Our, our method is so important that you have to go, okay? And so <laughs> that that is carried over into other parts of my life as well. You, you know, you know, a question I, I want to throw to you, you, you kind of hinted at it already. So you you have your day job. Um, you are writing, in the process of writing a book, which is a Herculean task, right? It's, yes. it's, it's a lot of effort. Um, <laughs> you have your side businesses. You just ran the your uh, extremely like successful festival. Um, this past year, it was a thing with this year, right? It was 2022, yeah, but it was just February. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I want to ask you a few questions, but the first question is that many people go to conferences. Many people go to conferences. Fewer people speak at conferences, but even fewer people take on creating a conference. What was that like? Were you, were you ever afraid that it wasn't going to go off the way you planned? Uh, yes. Um, I tell you what, it was probably the most fraught experience that I am glad that I had. Um, there were moments I would say six weeks out where I was like, maybe we should cancel. I'm like, no, we're not going to cancel. We're going to push through. And I, I don't know if it's called the laws of attraction, but everything that I needed from participants to sponsors came through on time. And then you get there. Right. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm pandemic about about the details of these convenings. And on that opening ceremony, I'm, I'm standing in front of the crowd. I had expected 75 people. We had over 150. Um, the, the dance troupe is behind me, ready to do their thing. I'm supposed to be giving an open statement. And I look to my, my left and I see my parents all misty-eyed. I look directly across the hall, down, right down the middle. I see my daughter smiling from uh, the doorway. I uh, look to my my right, and I literally see my childhood uh, youth pastor and my best friend from Seattle that flown in to support me. And I got choked up, and I I couldn't give uh, the statement that I wanted. I, I shortened it up and brought the band on, yeah. and it went four magical days. And then you know what really got me is the results. You know you know you had three mergers that happened. So I'm sitting there organizing a conference, going through panels and people are doing business, right? They're mer they're hearing someone on the panel, "Hey, can I talk to you? Let's get you on the phone." Boom. You know, purchase a company. Uh, you know, three people, three others, uh no, four others did interviews on the spot with people. They expressed a need. It's like, "You know what? Uh, I like what you do and I'll leave my role to join your organization." Collaborations, things have come out of it. I mean, I wish I were better at recording the impact. I've been so busy focused on next year's events. But I wish I were better at recording impact because that is the proof in your pudding. Or is there a transformative experience happening or are you just getting there talking? And I'm like, I I'm there for the transformation. 
that that's why you set these things up. That's why you put them in beautiful places because you're getting the right people in the room that are ready to to connect, to celebrate, and to act. That's 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 the whole point, man. But I tell you, I, I'm I'm having some PTSD and I'm thinking about it, like the anxiety that I had. You know, six weeks out, two months out. Boy, it was. <laughs> Oh boy! I put it this way: I, I had uh, so many pina coladas the day after it ended. I, I can't lost count after four. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what's it called? But but see, I love to teach and speak on putting ourselves where we can experience exceptional opportunities, exceptional circumstances, because just literally by being in those spaces and having to sink or swim, you grow, you learn, you're exposed to new people, opportunities, so on and so forth. It's just a magnificent feeling. But, but in order to overcome that, in order to get to that, that point, you have to deal with that fear. Why didn't you stop? You felt the fear. You felt you wanted to stop. You weren't sure. Why did you stop? Because I, I know there's so many people who right now who are listening right now saying, but, but how do you get over that fear? Yeah. You know, I've learned in life in my, my 45 years of living, you got to walk towards danger. And if you always play it safe, that's all you ever get. Playing it safe, keeping your cards close to your chest. And if you want a different result, you got to do something different. And COVID was my big aha moment. You know, my, my father um, was in ICU for almost a month. I thought I was going to lose probably the most important man in my life, my hero, my pops. And, you know, it got to the point where I was really planning his Zoom funeral because this is 2020. And once he overcame, you know, intubation and, you know, eight of his colleagues dying in the ICU rooms next to him and coming out of that and me finally being able to visit him and he's standing up. He's like, I just want you to know that I'm on my two feet. I was like, yeah. And literally a, a light bulb switch and that portal of creativity and of risk taking that I had closed for playing it safe. Just, I just started saying yes to everything. Yes, yes, yes. And literally it feels like my life has tripled in output. I'm not saying it doesn't come without cost because there is only a limited amount of time, but I feel such a sense of urgency to get some things done now while there's a window of opportunity to do it. I'm fortunate enough to be a part of a platform that encourages um, innovation in our respective spaces, as long as it doesn't conflict with what we're doing at Aspen. And my work doesn't. I'm, I'm focused on belonging. That's not what we do at Aspen. <laughs> so, um, and so it's wide open space. And there's a lot of people that are looking for the platforms and the content that I'm building. And so uh, I'm, I'm here in Turkey. I was in Azerbaijan before this, two days ago, focused on belonging. So the, the world needed me to get my act together and to get out of safe zone and get into that creation zone. And I think that's what everyone needs. Hopefully it doesn't take something traumatic to get you there. And hopefully it doesn't take 45 years either. It took that for me. We do run our, so, you know, it is what it is. And I'm thankful for it all. But I don't know if you and I will be having the conversation that we're having now, but for enduring um, that near tragic experience with my father during uh, 2020. You, you know, it's interesting. Again, you said so much and there's, there's so much I could follow up with. But I'll just say initially, you know, when I look back and I, I encourage people in my, my courses and audience to do the same thing. When I look back at my life, um, there's there's two points I love to key in on. The first is I look at all the horrible times. I've lived through. I look at all the bad things that have happened, all the times I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. I look through all that. And the first thing I say is I'm here. I, 
this is proof. This is not a feeling. This is not being positive. This is not, not, this is empirical data. I have overcome all these things that I wasn't sure I was going to be able to overcome. So I can do this and, and I'm strong. So that's the first thing is understanding that. And then second is if you look at where you are now, I'm not even going to say generally speaking, it is because you were able to overcome something that was bad in your life in the past. And now you are here now. I, I love what you're talking about right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I was, um, I was in Berlin a couple of weeks ago on a podcast. And they were getting me to really open up about some horrible experience that I had professionally. I remember being professionally humiliated seven years ago at an organization I really loved. Um, you, you know the name of it, big, big foundation, and just ran to the wrong manager. It is what it is. But it was so traumatic to me personally. And I was so personally embarrassed. But it was almost like my body went to auto drive and I just smiled through it. I worked right through it and kept moving. Kept it moving as if I was chasing the ghost, chasing a reaction I was supposed to have. I was chasing this depression that was supposed to overcome me, but it never did because I just kept working. I kept showing up, kept showing up. And now today, that particular organization is a huge client of mine, right? I've never said a negative word about the people involved or the organization. I just moved on. Um, never considered for a fact, you know, that like... Uh, my humiliation was 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 public. It turns out it wasn't. In my mind, it was. But uh, and probably that was the wrong reaction to have. But you keep fighting through it, and you get better every every single innovation, every every cycle. You just keep going. You keep going. You keep going. Because at the end of the day, we are the aggregation of our experiences: good, bad, happy, or sad. And we are better for going through the bad parts. I remember every loss, but I don't remember the wins because the wins are so multiple. I just don't remember. Okay. <laughs> I don't focus on them, mm-hmm. but the loss, right? Those are the things that drive me to be better and to be better and to be better because I want, I want to have impact. I want to be better than I was yesterday. And I want to transform the lives of others as well. And if I dwell on the things that get me down or make me blue, I can't get there. And so we have to walk towards danger. We have to walk towards the uncomfortable if you want things to be different. If you're a manager in the federal government, do you have feds protection professional liability insurance? Because if you don't, you need to get it. Having a feds policy means that you will be protected against any professional capacity lawsuit administrative action or criminal investigation arising from actions taken in the scope of your employment. This insurance is a must-have for federal managers and starts at just $209 a year. Plus, your agency will reimburse you for half of this cost. To learn more, visit www.fedsprotection.com or call 866-955-3337 today. You know, I, I was recently asked at a workshop I presented the other day, they say, how do you keep yourself from reacting versus responding? Uh-huh. Right. And and I, I say I say that because you, you talk about right now, but I, I say I've experienced times in my life where I have 100 percent reacted. And I don't know, every time I regretted it. Right. So I was like that, that was not the right way to go. <laughs> and so I had to teach myself how to, to monitor my own body. And so when I'm in a space and things are getting heated, I can feel my heart starting to, to speed up a little bit. I can, I can feel my hands starting to tremble a little bit. I'm a little sweating. 
I, I'm like, you know what, Alex, this is not a good space for you. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll now intentionally find a way to step back out of that. So I can make sure I calm myself so I can respond versus react. How do you keep yourself from reacting versus responding? I've learned two words, zoom out, zoom out. Okay. Just like in your camera. Cause when you zoom out and you look at the totality of of the circumstance, A, there may have been something that you did to help create the situation, okay? So you got to put your empathy hat on. And B, compare your life at 45 with the life of your grandfather at 45. In the United States of America, I'm, I'm, I'm having cotton candy at Disneyland every single day. So whatever I'm going through is first world nonsense. I'll survive. Tomorrow's a new day. Chill out, Wardell. Zoom out, okay? Zoom out and get over it. And so that's, I had to do this in the airport recently. Um, I was supposed to go into the, and uh, this is sounds so horrible. I was supposed to go into the VIP line. I went in the wrong VIP line and the gentleman wasn't very kind as I'm showing him the letter from his government. And so I immediately snapped because I was tired after 16 hours of flying. I said, what is your name? What is your name, sir? <laughs> and he was like, why do you want my name? I said, because I'm going to tell the minister who's disrupting my visit because he invited me. And you could see the fright in his face. And I felt horrible. So I just stepped back. I said, my apologies. And I just moved over. I just removed myself, went and sat down away from everyone else. And guess what? The VIP crew came and retrieved me. Okay. And they were asking, who was the gentleman? I said, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. Because why why am I going to wreck his life? Because I felt like being a jerk after 16 hours flying. Like I had a, I had a role to play in that. Right. It didn't have to get there. We didn't have to get animated with each other. But you know, I had a hair trigger temper after 16 hours of flying. That's on Cordell. Okay. So zoom out, chill out. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, so we, we've talked about all the fun stuff. We've talked about all the fun stuff. Now, now I got to get to the, to the stuff that I have to ask. Okay. Okay. I got to ask it. Okay. So look, the economy, there are signs that the economy is starting to slow down. We have inflation up. We have companies starting to, to, have hiring freezes, laying people off. Um, I've been speaking to a lot of leaders recently about budget cuts. Uh-huh. Now, you spoke earlier about being at the Executive Institute. And I actually, I remember being there one year with one of, our, one of the professors. And he said, your job as a leader is to protect your budget. That's your job. If you don't protect your budget, you haven't done a good job because now you may lose your staff. You may hurt people. Like, so I would like to hear your response. Is your job as a leader to protect your budget? And then at what cost? I mean, someone's going to have the budget cut, right? I don't think that's your job as a leader, but I, it depends on the context. Obviously, if, if this was the feds where it's use or lose, absolutely. You want to protect your budget. In fact, I, I spent a week at the Army War College uh, now, I guess, 10 days ago during the National Security Seminar. And we had a, some really robust discussions about the budget. And, you know, I'm, I'm asking a basic question. Do you really think $750 billion a year is sustainable? Of course not. Okay, so what do you do? Say, and the issue is they ask Congress for five and they get 15. And if they don't spend the 15, they'll lose the five. I mean, it's a, it creates a very perverse incentive to just spend, spend, spend and protect your budget at all costs. We're coming to a point where that won't be possible. Okay, it won't be possible. You, you just can't keep printing money. In fact, I would say we're in the mess that we are in because of quantitative easing for what? For three years of the last administration, literally putting pumping $90 billion in cash into the economy every Friday. For, for three years straight, this was going on. I said, at some point, you have to pay that bill. And we're paying that bill now. I actually think the job of a leader is to create an upwardly mobile experience for their employees. Okay, My job is to be to express division, 
to explain what your role is and uh, achieving that vision, but not to micromanage you, but to, to coach you where you need it and to, you know, fall in love fast and fall out of love fast. If it's not working, I'll know um, because I've given you enough rope for you to be creative enough to hang yourself, uh, but move on. But if, if it does work, great. Even if you're only with me for two years, it'll be the best two years of your career. You'll tell everybody, oh my gosh, I wish I worked with Cordell. He was so much better than these other folks, you know? And so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in the private sector, so the, the whole budget thing is, is not something that I, I fixate on. I'm mostly concerned about costs, <laughs> but <laughs> I believe uh, investments are necessary. And, and what we're going to lose with tightening budgets is professional development funds. Uh, and it's going to cause, create, most leaders are going to have to really Think about how do I squeeze it out? Do we buy less pens? Do we take less trips? But I think it'd be a tragedy to stop investing in your leaders and your staff because the, the main line is being threatened. We're all going to take a haircut, but you, know, you still can have edges with a haircut, okay? And so figure out a way, use your creativity to figure out a way to, to create funds and flexibility, financially speaking, to continue to develop your employees. They will love you for it. They don't know that you made it a priority of their development for however long you have them. Because one of the issues that we have in D.C. is a transitory nature of employees, right? People are coming and going every 18 months to two years, and it creates a disincentive for the leaders to invest in them. If I know you're only here for you know, 18 months, two years, why would I promote you? Okay, like Why would I invest in you? You do your work and then leave. Like, I know you're going to. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you create an amazing environment for them to thrive as professionals, maybe they'll make a different decision. And if they don't, you still did right by them. And they'll tell someone you did right by them. And you'll get great people as a result. I completely 100% agree with you. And I, and this is where I was going, you know, talking to, talking to training managers, right? Oh. And as you just said, one of the first spaces to have budgets cuts is training, right? Training, acquisition, so on and so forth, talent acquisition, so on and so forth. And the reality is, I mean, the research shows over, 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 losing an employee cost, cost the organization about six months, at, at minimum six months, their salary to replace them, right? Yeah. Yet we, it's so easy to say training, that's a nice to have. Everything else is required. And trying to kind of get some ideas for how organizations can and leaders can make those cases, you know? Yeah, I, I think showing a business case or retention is key to it. I call this my Luther Vandross strategy. You know, love the ones you're with. Because if you love them, meaning invest in them and show that, hey, I am taking cuts in other areas to preserve this thing for you because this is important for retaining my employees. Because we, we have a couple of different things happening. You're, you're having... Um, some contraction in the market, but you're also having talent sourcing issues. We have far more jobs open, especially in the, the tech sector, than you have people available. And so upskilling all this stuff is a rage of getting massive investments from private equity, because this is what people need. Like I need to upskill you from Salesforce to AWS or, or the other way. And why would I bring in someone new that doesn't understand my organization? They may understand the tech, but not my organization. Obviously upskilling is far more cost-effective because you can do this for two hours of the eight hours you're on site, right? Rather than like me bringing someone in at a much higher premium that I, then I have to teach my organization. And so you want to keep the ones that you have because uh, the recruiting and, and hiring and, and all the interviewing, this is just a drain. It's not just the salary costs. It's also the amount of money that you spend for the existing employees having to engage in these activities. They have to do the interviewing. They have to make sure it's a cultural fit. They have to do the tech stream. Why? To make sure you can actually do the job. I mean, you start looking at the number of people involved and bringing on new staff. I think you'll quickly decide, you know what? How can I keep the folks that I have? 
how can I go Luther Vandross on these folks and love the ones that I'm with? Because that's much better than the alternative. So I think key to it is you got to make the case for just keeping the ones that you have and investing in them. It's just cheaper than trying to find new people. And, and moreover, there are no new people. Everyone, you can't keep poaching each other's employees. It's not like there's a, these, these pools of folks that are ready to go. No, we have to train them up. And we're doing that part. But, but um, uh, it's not like they'll be ready tomorrow. That's going to take some time. So uh, I think right now, employers are in a really tough spot. They're in a really tough spot when it comes to talent. It, it, you know, I, I know we're going to start wrapping up. I'm pretty sure I heard the um, the president of Turkey uh, on, on your line a few minutes ago saying, yeah, jump off. What's going on? <laughs> um, I, 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 I've heard you speak on the the importance of organizations and importance of governments um, finding new ways to to leverage emerging technology blockchain and so on and so forth. I'd love to hear you speak a little more on this. as leaders, what should we be doing to educate ourselves and find opportunities to leverage those new technologies? I'm glad you you asked that particular question because, you know, in leaders, you know, my, especially my leadership philosophy, we are setting the table, the intellectual table for others to eat all the time. Like we're literally just putting it out, putting more things out. I mean, that's what a good leader does. But what also good leaders do is they ignore the fact that they too have an appetite. And I have to spend more time investing in my own learning. And I'm, I'm learning that now as I'm, I'm getting out and about more, I'm speaking more. There's just some deficits. There's some books I haven't had a chance to read. Uh, I probably have 30 books that I've been given or bought in the last six months that literally are a pile in my office at the house. I would love just six weeks to go through it and read it. I wish I could just go to an island and just read for a few weeks. I'll get all caught up. So you you got to, in order to even get your teams to the point where they can leverage these, because you don't understand the use cases yet. You have to understand the technology to get the use cases. And so I, I think leaders need to invest in themselves, maybe 10% of their time, what I call blue sky. We do once every two weeks, one day of just blue sky. And the way we do Blue Sky is still program, meaning because we're in D.C., uh, we'll walk to the Hishhorn or one of the sculpture gardens or one of the Smithsonian's and literally just talk about what we're looking at. Like, hey, this is really cool. We'll have lunch. We'll go back to office. But that eight to, to nine hours of like not focus on the day to day just really opens up the mind. Like the aperture just opens up and you start seeing these connections that you wouldn't have seen had you been heads down. OK, but. Truth be told, it's for me. I need it, okay? I benefit more than they do. Um, they think, hey, he's paying for lunch today. It's awesome. I'm like, no, you don't get it. I get to go out and play and just think and just look at art and be inspired by what I'm seeing and start like thinking of some new seminars to create. This is good for us all. And so if you can't afford you know, great training, try to leverage the assets that you already have. Uh, for those in the DC metro area, we have tremendous cultural assets that are free, okay? So let's leverage those things. I mean, art is supposed to move you in certain ways. That's why it's so expensive. So go see this amazing art we have at the National Galleries, at a few of the Smithsonian's. There are a few amazing private galleries that you will have to pay for, but this are amazing. And so that's one of the big things that I, I think will help us get to that place where you can start seeing these unique use cases. Well, look, you did this to yourself and I got to slide one more in there. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. And I would love to do that. But we're all remote. How do you create these connections, these relationships and have those spaces when everyone is across the country in different time zones? Uh, we have to start 
planning to come together at regular intervals because you cannot build organization, organizational culture digitally. It's just, it's not possible. And so, uh, and in my particular instance, uh, we are in three different states, but my organization has made a decision that we're all coming back to the office in September. And I've let the team know that please make your plans to return um, or let's have a different conversation because it's called work for a reason, right? And I think there are tremendous utilities to be gained here. And I think we do have to weigh the equities. People have different conditions. And frankly, I'm a results guy. I, I really don't care where you do it, even how you get to it, as long as we get this result we're, we're trying to achieve. And then in a very competitive labor market, you know, your ability to hire from anywhere in the country, it makes a huge difference on recruiting, especially in tight markets. Uh, and so I, I think we're in a really tough spot if you can't make an edict like we do. In the federal space, they absolutely can do edicts. <laughs> yeah, so we can. And, and perhaps they should, to a certain degree, to achieve some of these organizational culture um, metrics they're, they're seeking to accomplish. So I'm giving you a wishy-washy answer on that one because it is tough. I know it's so contextual. But generally, I mean, I, I'll, ask, I'll answer this way. Do long-distance relationships work long-term? No. Mm. You got to be in relations to be connected physically. You have that proximity. And so um, we, we have to figure this one out. This, this was a tough one. I don't have a great answer. This is a tough one. What you did do is present arguments, pros and cons for both sides. And this is what these conversations are for. The, the listeners, I know you're out there right now. And you have to be able to pull on both sides of this conversation and say what works best for our organization. So thank you so much for providing this learning opportunity, Mr. Cordell Esquire. I want to open the floor to you. Is there any? Thoughts, any ideas, any last things you'd like to just share um, with our audience before we begin to wrap up? Yeah, I, I'm launching a new series of content on belonging. My theory of change on that is, is that diversity, equity, inclusion is a car on the road of discovery. And it's traversing the hills of our isms, be it racism, classism, whatever our isms are, but is going to some place. And that place is a land called belonging, uh, where there's places for everyone. And in the land of belonging, there's a speakeasy called thriving. But you got to use the keys and the glove box of that car called DE&I to access that speakeasy called Thrive. And doesn't mean you'll get in, but you'll have multiple shots at it. And so I'm building some content around that and launching that with a few organizations in the South uh, later on this fall. I'm pretty excited about it. We're putting on our own little learning management system, teamed up with a team at Morehouse College. And these young men are, are helping me along, helping the old man get in the studio and record this stuff. But I'm having a lot of fun writing um, the material and uh, working on the scripts. And so um, be stay tuned for that. Belongingandthriving.org. You are amazing. And I am so glad I belong to your relationship crew, uh, your cohort of thinkers. I'm, I was trying to be cool. So everyone, <laughs> this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You know what is about to come right now. You know what I'm about to say. Don't look back. Reach. If you found anything of value in today's conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Reach out and bring out some, bring back someone to the table and share this content with them. Don't say, hey, you should have been here. Uh, that's on you. Don't, don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. I just want to say thank you for everyone who's been along with this awesome journey. And as always, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. See ya.
Thanks for listening to The Executive Appeal with Alex Trumbull. I invite you to follow The Executive Appeal wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me, your host, Alex Trimble, across all socials or via email for exclusive webinars, courses, and his speaking engagements on continued topics of executive leadership. So until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.